we've launched these very uh, aggressive diversity goals as a company. And then I've also put in the RFP that I want to understand your diversity, not just your commitment, but actually what you're doing. You should pay attention to that. Because if what I get back is no diversity, no conversation, then it's going to tell me how in tune the supplier is to the deeds of that department in helping us to achieve our goals to support our business. Good day and welcome to Dwayne Morris DNR 360 with Joe West. I'm Yumika Anderson Howard, DEI Manager at Dwayne Morris. We have the pleasure of having as our guest this week, Noni Ellison, Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at Tractor Supply Company. Joe and Noni will have a conversation on career growth, professional development, and the expectations of in-house counsel. Hi, this is Joe West, uh, partner at Dwayne Morris, member of the Management Committee and the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Uh, I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to have uh, Noni Ellison joining us. Noni is the Senior Vice President, uh, General Counsel, and she wears a lot of other hats in addition to being the Chief Legal Officer at Tractor Supply. How you doing, Noni? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Noni, uh, I've known you for a few years, and when I talk to younger lawyers, particularly law students who I mentor. You and I both mentor a lot of younger students and law students. And I talk to them about being purposeful, about preparing themselves for a legal career. And let's face it, a business slash legal career. I cite you as the gold standard for that example. Um, I want you to talk, first of all, about the decision you made when you were in law school. And only graduated from Howard went to law school at the University of Chicago and decided to get an MBA while she was there. Uh, and it was so purposeful when I think back about the decisions that you made at that time period and how they've connected to the success that you've had in the legal and business world. Tell a little bit about the decision. What went into your decision to, you know what, uh, I'm going to get that MBA. I'm going to study international business and finance. I'm going to do that uh, that time abroad in the UK or in Accra, Ghana. Uh, what was that all about? What drove you then? And how, looking back, have those decisions impacted the success you've had in the profession? Absolutely. Thank you first for, for having me. I'm humbled uh, by the introduction uh, and I'm really excited to be here with you today. You know, one might think it was uh, a, a lot more artful than uh, the decision making actually was, but uh, it really evolved over time. When I attended the University of Chicago uh, in 1997, uh, starting out, I really did not uh, think about an MBA at that time. There was no formal JD MBA program at the University of Chicago at that time since then we actually do have a formal JD MBA program. But I started in the, the law school and after my first summer uh, of working at a law firm and then going on to uh, Accra where I was a junior foreign service officer through the State Department, I ultimately decided that I wanted to be a business lawyer and uh, international business lawyer um, or domestic business lawyer, but definitely a business lawyer. 
And what I recognized was that in order for me to be the best business lawyer I could be, I wanted to have an in-depth understanding of business. And uh, I was introduced to the business school at the University of Chicago through uh, a number of, of courses uh, that were offered and decided to take uh, the GMAT uh, and apply to the business school when many of my classmates were applying uh, for um, legal clerkships. Uh, so I took a different path and uh, was fortunate to be accepted into the business school. Uh, and then once I started in the business school, it just opened up uh, so many other opportunities that weren't available at that time to law school students, such as the International Business Exchange Program, uh, where I then studied at Manchester Business School for a semester. Uh, as well as uh, the opportunity to apply to the graduate program in health administration and policy uh, and, and get a certification. So those were four different programs that I was able to matriculate through while a student at the University of Chicago and still graduate within four years. And I did that because uh, just in my initial introduction to business law, to blue sky security law in Texas and corporate finance, which I really found very uh, intriguing, uh, I, I knew that I needed to have preparation in all of those areas to be at the top of my game coming out of law school. Well, and you've been at the top of your game for sure. Um, tell us a little bit about the decision that took you. You know, I, I joke about the fact that I spent time in-house and now I'm at a firm. I call that the reverse commute. Uh, you were at Vincent and Elkins for a while. How did you get into the uh, in-house life? And that's number one. And then I want to talk about the different industries that you found yourself. Although thinking back to your law school preparation, it looks like you got some nuggets from here and there to, to sort of prepare you for each of those different industries, but they are different industries. So how'd you end up going in-house? And then we'll talk about sort of like the different transitions you made in-house. Absolutely. Well, um, at Vincent and Elkins, I was in the corporate finance and securities group. Uh, so I was introduced there to a vast array of industries, although we primarily, I was based in Houston, Texas. And so we supported obviously a lot of oil and gas companies. Um, but that said, we also had food services. I did IPOs in addition to follow-on offerings, a lot of M&A in uh, staffing businesses, as well as food services. So what I learned is that you can come up to speed uh, relatively quickly on an industry, but if your skill set uh, is fundamentally sound mm -hmm. and you are going to be a solid lawyer across those industries, uh, and then you can learn the industry, right? And so I was introduced through that practice very early on in my career. And ultimately, uh, I uh, became um, a pipeline lawyer through charting your own course, which was an organization that Wharton Bellamy founded. So in 1998, I believe, Vincent Elkin sponsored charting your own course. And I was invited to participate. And shortly after participating in that program, and being introduced to both, obviously I knew the law firm track, but at there, that was where I was introduced to the in-house counsel track and actually met um, many in-house counsel 
Um, with the premise being that the law firm attorneys would partner with the in-house attorneys so that there would be a constant flow of work going from the in-house attorneys over to the, the law firm attorneys to support uh, attorneys of color in the law firm space. And um, true to his word, Wharton actually sent me several matters uh, once I returned to Vincent and Elkins uh, to work on. He was at Wyeth Ayers at the time. Uh, and so I really started to see how that worked. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, after three years uh, with Vincent and Elkins, I, you know, I began to appreciate uh, the possibility of being on a matter longer than just the fixed time that I spent on resolving an issue or acquiring a company. So mm -hmm. I could acquire a company on behalf of a client, but I wasn't involved in the post-closing integration of the acquisition, which is where you really see a lot of what you've negotiated and all the due diligence that you've done come to life. And, and I determined at that point, you know, I really would like to be a partner to the business on a long-term basis and not just for the fixed set of time it takes for me to do the IPO or to complete the acquisition or the divestiture. I want to see what happens after the fact. Uh, and then I began to look into in-house counsel opportunities. And that's where I landed at Scripps Networks uh, in New York City working for Bob Gerard. Um, who was a great first general counsel and pushed me to be on the uh, cable television affiliate side of the business, which was, you know, 60, 70% of the revenue of any cable network outside of advertising sales. And I really got to learn the nuts and bolts and use that M&A uh, negotiating skill set and the finance skill set that I had to support that business, primarily on the sales side of the business, and then took on advertising sales. So I think when you and I, the last time I saw you, Noni, in person, we were on a panel together, uh, Beasla panel, and you were at Turner at the time, I believe. Were, were you not? I was at Turner for 11 years, yes. And so it's interesting because obviously there are some commonalities among businesses there are some and you said the key words there just fundamental chops in the business space but there are differences in the industries that you were in at that time in the industry you're in now tractor supply if people don't know about it it's uh it's kind of like the the rural lifestyle brand for uh in that space which obviously especially post-covid has been become quite a thing it was already an established company i think you guys have maybe like 2,000 stores in all but one state in the union, right? That's, that's accurate. We're at a, a $27 billion market cap, Fortune 250, with about 2,005 stores across 49 states. So very significant publicly traded company. We're not going to ask you about anything that's business related. I was at Fortune 1 for five years, so I get it. The caveats out there, we're not going to do about that. But I do want you to talk about making that transition from one type of industry to another and the commonalities that sort of still tether the work that you do together uh, and the preparation that you put into it. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, you know, my education um, was, has really been the foundation of my success. So really capitalizing on all of the opportunities at the University of Chicago and the experiences at Howard uh, and then just life experiences, 
you know, and has really helped me to achieve uh, this level of success in the legal profession. So uh, leaving, you know, the law firm world and then going into cable television affiliation uh, and advertising sales on the network side of the cable industry, and then moving over to Turner, where I stayed for 11 years, that included not only supporting the licensing business, but also uh, a stint overseas in Hong Kong, uh, where the international business component of, of my interest and background came into play. Um, and then ultimately moving over to Granger from Turner, where I then sort of capitalized on the, the work that I cut my teeth on, the corporate finance and securities. When I moved over to Granger, which is a distribution company, I um, supported the finance organization. So negotiating credit facilities, um, doing debt offerings, share repurchase agreements, supporting the financing of the of, of the acquis significant acquisition that we did during my tenure, as well as the board governance work. So what we didn't talk about was my work in the community while I was at Turner. So I was on the MARTA board uh, for um, five years, which was the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, where I served as a vice chair and chaired the audit committee. I was uh, chair of the Board of Urban League of Greater Atlanta for two years, vice chair for two years. And I also served on the Goodwill board as well as the several other boards. And the reason why that's significant is because I was introduced to governance and board governance and became very comfortable in a boardroom, making presentations, understanding, you know, Robert's rules of order and how it all unfolds. Um, and so when I went to Granger, having that public company experience from my B&E days, as well as the board governance experience, my uh, finance experience, all came into play to allow me to successfully um, fulfill that role. But understanding that obviously it was a different industry, but at the end of the day, it wasn't, again, based on my initial training, that complicated to understand the distribution business. You have to really invest the time to go out and visit the distribution centers. I did ride-alongs with the sales team. You know, I met with a lot of the business people, partnered with the business. Uh, I, I believe in being a steward of the business that you're supporting. It's right. critically important for you to make sound judgment calls to really understand the business and then layer your legal expertise on top of that. Well, there are a couple of things that I'm taking away from all of this, and it's the value both of building your skill set and your expertise, but also building your network uh, and the extent to which both of them will sort of propel you long term. Um, and so to that end, and, and look, I had forgotten about your involvement in the community. I was going to get to that. But it's so interesting that you tied it into uh, not only the way in which you contributed to the success of those community endeavors, but how they helped you in your learnings and your skill set in developing uh, to become a better business person. Um, in the few minutes we have left, I want to tap into a couple of things that might be helpful to people in the audience. I mean, first of all, uh, it would be naive of any of us to think that a woman of color, particularly in this industry, has not had some challenges, some barriers to overcome. Uh, if you can identify some of them, fine. If not, identify some of the ways in which you've been able to overcome those barriers 
And people who might be listening, who might face similar challenges, might be able to learn from your experience. Yes, so certainly. I mean, I think one of the biggest obstacles is being comfortable uh, with being your authentic self and, you know, maneuvering through how that plays out in any corporate environment. It's critically important when you're evaluating, I would say, both at a law firm as well as a a corporation, um, the culture. You know, the culture that you're walking into, understanding the culture, how do people treat each other? Um, What are the expectations culturally? So I uh, serve on the executive committee at Tractor Supply Company. I am the first person of color in the 83 year history of Tractor Supply Company on the executive committee. And I embrace that. I bring my authentic self to work every day. And what I knew walking into the door was that my CEO and my CHRO, who both interviewed me, as well as my board chair, would also embrace and appreciate the perspectives that I brought to the table and the value that I can add with my unique history and background, as well as the fact that I grew up in the rural South. So I understand the customer of Tractor Supply. I love going out in the field and visiting the stores. And it's very nostalgic. It reminds me of going to the feed store in Jennings, Louisiana with my grandfather who had cattle. And so I can relate on so many levels, but at the same time, I can bring a unique perspective to the table. Uh, My CEO and I just uh, about a week ago, uh, early March, uh, traveled to Selma, Alabama, where we not only have a tractor supply store uh, with a very diverse a group of, of team members, what we refer to as our employees in that store. But we also walked across the Pettus Bridge with a congressional delegation um, that I helped to organize in my capacity as the head of, of government relations for a tractor supply company. And so that's meaningful in so many ways that the CEO and the general counsel of Tractor Supply Company marched you know, arm in arm across the Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama after visiting our team members in Selma. We also have a store in Montgomery, Alabama. So we very much launched um, goals around making sure that our stores reflect the communities that they serve and increasing diversity in the management team. And I'm very active and my voice is respected in in that realm above and beyond my role as general counsel to the company. And so when you're thinking about making a move, you're thinking about other opportunities, you want to make sure that you're able to go into a space where you can be your authentic self. Obviously, you're still in corporate America, but you want to make sure that that you can bring all of you to work every day. And, And that's what I've done. And that's really been the key to my success. That is fantastic advice. And the story you just told says a lot, not just about you, but about your company as well. Um, that made me think about something else. I know you wear a lot of different hats, not the you know the chief legal officer compliance, but ESG is also one of the categories that you're responsible for. A lot of uh, companies are starting to gain a better appreciation for ESG. A lot of boards are starting to get more granularly involved in ESG related issues. Talk a little bit about um, what you see in terms of ESG. Uh, Just I'm talking about not just industry-wide, but 
society-wide or in the corporate space. And, and what you see in terms of the growth of a greater level of understanding, appreciation, maybe fluency in that space. Well, ESG has become critically important to the all the stakeholders uh, in corporate America, and I can speak specifically as, as it relates to my own experience. It's important to our institutional investors. Um, they are very keen around what we're doing in the space of ESG. Um, it's important to our customers as uh, our customers um, embark upon sustainable farming and organic farming. They want to understand, you know, what, what products do we have? What merchandise do we have to help uh, them to do what they need to do while not contributing to the demise of our climate? Uh, and we have, we have undertaken that task and we are making sure in our stores we have supplies that are natural alternatives from a pesticide standpoint. We have, you know, electric um, um, power tools, um, and we have, you know, organic gardening seeds and, and different things. And um, so we are really, we have a recycling program for our batteries, our oil, we recycle our cardboard, we're embarking upon a robust water goal right now. So we have taken this very ser seriously, and we're putting our money uh, where our mouth is, if you will. And we have uh, hired, I recently in September hired a senior director of sustainability who reports to me. Uh, we again launched very aggressive um, emissions reductions goals uh, at our company. And so we have a roadmap that we are now tracking to make sure that we meet those metrics, meet those goals uh, before uh, the dates that we've actually announced because it's really important to us. It's important to our customers. It's important to our team members all across the country. They wanna know what, you know, they wanna be proud of what we're doing. Uh, mm -hmm. And we wanna give them uh, the ability to be proud of what we're doing as a company and to be able to share that with the customers that come into our store on a daily basis. So we have taken it very seriously. I chair uh, the Sustainability Council at the NRF, uh, which is the largest uh, retail lot trade association. And, um, you know, we, I hear all the time from sustainability experts from across our retail industry uh, as we talk about some of the challenges um, as well as some of the advances that we're making. And we're all sort of neck and neck, you know, running this race to make sure that we are doing our part um, to reduce emissions, um, uh, carbon emissions uh, in the climate. And so that's really important um, across the board. It's really indicative of the fact that uh, corporate entities, especially publicly traded companies, are really expected to be good corporate citizens now. And that's something that I think the law firms who serve them should be mindful of. One or two more questions for you. I want to respect your time, Noni, because I'm so thankful for you making time for us. Uh, for those uh, law firm folks out there who are listening, uh, what's the one piece of advice you would give in terms of engagement with uh, your clients? What's the thing you want them to remember more than anything else? Yeah, so I just, um, at the end of last year, launched the first RFP for our legal department, something that I really believe in in every company uh, where I've worked. And it's important to understand 
uh, exactly what your law firms are bringing to the table, how they're willing to partner with you um, and to see that in writing. And it's also important for the law firms that we work with to understand our goals. Uh, and so um, through that process, one of the things that was important to me is to understand uh, the diversity of the law firms um, that work with the legal department at Tractor Supply Company uh, and the diversity of the potential staffing on our matters. That was a question on the RFP and something that we did look at. Um, I became, uh, our legal department became a member of MCCA this year for the first time. Uh, and we're able to get a lot of metrics from them to rank some of the law firms in, in terms of diversity, but also it's important for my department to support the overall goals and objectives of the company. And like I said, we launched very aggressive DEI goals in September. And one of those goals was around supplier diversity and increasing our support of diverse suppliers. Well, for legal, the suppliers are law firms. And in order to be able to track and contribute to uh, increase supplier diversity at our company, it's important for me to have that information. So the one thing that I would say it's important for law firms to do, and I've had these conversations of late with several managing partners, is to pay attention, pay attention to what's important to the companies and specifically the general counsel and legal departments that you support uh, and, and respond accordingly. Because if you see, first of all, I'm an African-American woman, um, and and I, we've launched these very uh, aggressive diversity goals as a company. And then I've also put in the RFP that I want to understand your diversity, not just your commitment, but actually what you're doing, what your numbers are, what your metrics are, how you would staff my matters, would those matters be diverse? Then you should pay attention to that. Because if what I get back is no diversity, no conversation, no um you know, no focus uh, on these areas, then it's going to tell me um, a little bit about judgment, um, responsiveness, and how in tune uh, the supplier is to the deeds of that department in helping us to achieve our goals to support our business, which at the end of the day is the role that we play as a support function. That is one of the most um, cogent articulations for the business case for diversity that I've ever heard. Uh, Noni, uh, I can't thank you enough for making time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I read an article about you and someone was quoted as saying, Noni has so much on her plate that it's a platter. Uh, so, <laughs> so I know how busy you are. Thank you for making time, my friend. I really appreciate it. And I'm really, really proud of you. Congratulations on all your success and, and all the best for you. Thank you, Joe. And thanks for having me today.